Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the words that I, works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has commandments and keeps them, has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? And not to the world. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These words I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts so that we may hear what you'd say to us in the power of your Spirit this morning. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in every heart. Lord, that you will help us to see these glorious truths 
about who Jesus really is and that you would cause us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you want to know someone, to understand who they really are, you need to spend time with them. But here in John chapter 14, we find that in the case of the disciples with Jesus, it's not enough. They had spent three years with Jesus, listening to him teach, watching him work, but they didn't understand who he really was. And even though he told them repeatedly who he was, they still didn't get it. The truths about Jesus Jesus are spiritually discerned. They didn't understand until after the resurrection, until after they had received the Holy Spirit. John 14, verses 1 to 14, is a very popular passage in Scripture. It includes some glorious promises. But the question that we all need to be asking this morning is, do these promises apply to me? Well, whether these promises apply to you depends on whether you really know Jesus. Do you really know Jesus? There's people who think that they know Jesus. I've talked with plenty of people who think they know Jesus, but when, when I talk to them about something from the Bible, they say something like, my God would never do that. People have presuppositions about who Jesus is, and it is only in his word and the power of his Holy Spirit that we can begin to understand who Jesus really is. These disciples had all kinds of presuppositions about who Jesus is, and a lot of them were wrong. And that's why when we get all the way to the end of of Jesus' ministry here in John chapter 14, they still don't understand. So Jesus set out once again right at the end to tell them. Now, there's really three good questions that you could ask somebody if you want to understand who they are. You should ask them, where are you going? You can ask them directly, who are you? And you can ask them, what are you doing? And Jesus corrects the ignorance of his disciples by revealing the answers to these three questions. In verses 1 to 6, he answers the question, where are you going? In verses 7 to 10, he answers the question, who are you? And the third we'll look at next week, from verses 11 to 14, what are you doing? Now, all of these have profound implications for the disciples, and not just for those disciples. All of these have profound implications for all who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is reveals where they are going. Who Jesus is reveals who they are, and what Jesus does reveals what they will be doing. That's true for those first disciples, and it is true for all of us who are his disciples to this day. So first of all, first question, verses 1 to 6, where are you going? In verse 1, Jesus tells the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Seems kind of a curious way to start. Why would they be troubled? Well, the answer is actually in John 13. This is really a continuation of the same discourse, the same teaching that Jesus had given the disciples, the same dialogue that he had had with them in the previous chapter. He's just told them that one of them would betray him. That's shocking. He just told them that one of them would deny him. That's appalling. But he has also just told them that he is leaving. Unfathomable. 
As bad as the betrayal and the denial of Jesus was, what troubled them the most was his departure, the fact that he was leaving them. Ironically, in chapter 13, 21, Jesus was troubled as he told them that one of them was going to betray him. And now he's telling them not to be troubled. And while Jesus was troubled at the betrayal of a friend, the disciples were troubled that their friend seemed to be deserting them. Now just put yourself in the, in the shoes or the sandals of the, of the disciples for a moment. Think about how it must have felt for them. The one that they had left everything to follow. The one to whom they had devoted themselves. The one they loved was leaving. And they couldn't follow, at least not yet. They were shocked. They were confused. They were grieved. They had thought that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom on earth. And they thought that they were going to rule beside him. And they may have understood by this point that he was going to die, but the resurrection hadn't even begun to enter their thinking, let alone Jesus' final destination. But if they'd understood, their fears would have melted away into joy. They would have been overcome with joy when they understood where Jesus was going and what that meant for them. They didn't understand how the story was going to end. The story was going to end badly for Judas, but they had no reason to be troubled. So Jesus tells them, believe in God, believe also in me. The remedy for a troubled spirit is faith. Although this could be translated as either an imperative or an addictive, as a command or a statement of fact, it could be translated, believe in God, believe also in me, or you believe in God and you also believe in me, the context points to the former, that this is, this is actually an imperative, it's a command. He's telling the disciples, believe in me, trust me. Jesus has never let them down so far, and he's not about to start. He's leaving. He's leaving, and that is going to be incredibly hard for them. But it's not ultimately bad news. It's not ultimately bad news because of where Jesus is going. He's leaving to prepare a place for them. Now, the word is translated here as rooms, but it's literally dwelling place. Jesus is going to prepare a place for them. Brothers and sisters, he has gone to prepare a place for us as well. Down in verse 23, he uses the same word. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home, our dwelling place, with him. Do you love Jesus? Are you keeping his word? If so, the Father loves you, and he and the Son will come to you and dwell with you. Not just then, not sometime in the future, but even now. Even now, you can enjoy deep fellowship with the Father and the Son. But if you examine yourself by these things, if, you, if, you, if you're really honest with yourself and, and you ask yourself, do I love Jesus? You'd have, to, you'd have to admit that you really don't love Jesus as you should. And you really don't love Jesus all the time. And the same goes for keeping his word. 
That's our desire. We want to keep his word, but we fail consistently, don't we? We all fail in keeping his word. If we understand that this, the standard is abs- absolute perfection, we realize that all of us, every single one of us, fall woefully short of this. In Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2, King David writes, O Lord, who shall, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart. David knows full well, and so do we, if we're honest, that none of us is blameless, that none of us continually does what is right, and that none of us deserves to dwell in the presence of the Lord. But even still, now think about this, even still, Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. For us. Sinners that we are. And that's the hope of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Because our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our ability to live up to what God's word requires for us. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and him alone. Our hope is in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on that cross. As he bore our sin, as he took the guilt, the filth, every filthy action, every filthy word, every filthy heart, every every filthy thought that we had committed. He bore the wrath of that, brothers and sisters. But not just that. His perfect record of righteousness is applied to us. That's the gospel. That's the incredible, incredible, incredible economy of the gospel. That God would take our sin and that he would give us his righteousness. And that's the hope that we have. And so our hope is that we will go to be with him and to dwell with him forever. J.C. Ryle talks about what heaven would be like for an unrepentant sinner. For an unrepentant sinner who has lived their life in hatred of God, in rebellion of God, heaven would be hell. Because in heaven, what are we going to be doing? We are going to be living with God for all eternity, singing his praises rejoicing, basking in his presence forever and ever. But for the person that hates God, how despicable would that be to them? But for those of us who have been given new hearts, who have been granted repentance unto salvation, who have made that U-turn, turned away from a life of, of selfishness and sin and sought after Christ, seeking to live a holy life, then our hope is to be with him forever, to be dwelling with him forever. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines this word translated dwelling places by saying the heavenly dwellings, which are the goal of salvation and to which believers will go after their earthly separation from God, are called abiding places, which are fully prepared for them in the Father's house. Beloved, that's our true home. 
When you, when you go to your house and, and unlock the front door and walk in, it might feel like you're going home. But that's not your home. You have a home that is indescribably better than that. The house that you are currently living in will decay. It will eventually fall to the ground. But the home that you are going to live eternally with God in will never, ever, ever fall down. Jesus continues in verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. Now, I really have no idea how amazing our heavenly dwelling will be. But that's not ultimately where we place our focus. Beloved, our place is in the Father's house. Jesus is coming again to take us to himself so that we can dwell together with him and with the Father in eternity. Jesus had to leave, but he's coming back for us. He's coming back for us where we will live eternally with the triune God. Now, goodbyes are hard for me. Goodbyes are hard for me. Every earthly relationship will come to an end one day. One day, if the Lord tarries, death will separate the closest of friendships. It will tear parents from children and husbands from wives. But in in eternity, we will share fellowship with our Lord and around, around the throne of God forever. All of our brothers and sisters together, celebrating, rejoicing, worshiping God in a place where there will be no more goodbyes. No more tearful departures. Jane and I were talking this week about how one of the the most difficult aspects of hell would be the fact that your not just your agony, but to know that you have no hope, that your agony will will continue forever and ever and ever. Even if you've ever had a really bad toothache. And and you understand the pain of a toothache. Imagine even knowing if that pain would just continue forever and ever and ever. Now consider the pain of eternal hellfire. Infinite pain for all eternity. But then contrast that with the joy of knowing that we will have eternal life with Christ. Knowing that that every moment that we will share with him, we'll we'll just give away into another moment and another moment and another moment and we will rejoice with God in his presence forever and ever and ever. Now that's something to get excited about. That's something to get excited about. Down in verse 27, Jesus promises the disciples peace. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, do I give you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now people are continually seeking peace. For years I sought peace in the form of of pursuing drug abuse. 
People seek peace in all kinds of different ways. They, they seek peace at work. They seek peace in sleep. They seek peace in play. But the type of peace that Jesus offers is not the type of peace that the world gives. He gives eternal peace. He gives peace that, that goes beyond all understanding. Beloved, that peace is promised to us too. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. His peace is true and lasting peace. But notice there what he says to the disciples in verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. They didn't understand because they didn't know where Jesus was going. If they loved him, they would rejoice that he is going to the Father. And he told them quite clearly that that's where he's going. In verse 4, he said, you know the way I am going. You know the way I am going. He, he just told them that he was going to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. But Thomas, who, who once again is living up to his nickname, Doubting Thomas, asks the question, he says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, we know the way. We've been given insider information. Back in, in John 13, 3, Jesus was, John told us that Jesus is going back to the Father. But even though the disciples had just been told this, they hadn't yet realized it. They knew that Jesus had been sent by the Father, but they didn't know that he was going back to the Father. They didn't know that he was returning to him. But if they had loved Jesus, they would have rejoiced with him that he was going back to the Father, even though they would miss him terribly. If you love somebody, it is hard to see them go. But you're glad to see them go to a better place. One of the ways that, that I saw this recently was, was with Wend Griffiths, as, as she was watching her husband die. She was sad. She knew she was going to miss Dave. But at the same time, she was rejoicing. She was rejoicing because she knew where he was going. And she said to Dave, you know, I, I feel a little bit jealous or envious of you. They said, you'd better feel jealous. In typical Dave fashion. But if we understand that that is our destination, we are in the destination of those, our loved ones who have departed, then we can rejoice. Because those who have departed in Christ are departing to be with the Father. But the disciples didn't understand. Think of, of a good buddy that, that, that you might have if you, were, if you were fighting in a war. Your brother at arms, the one whom you fought with shoulder to shoulder in the heat of battle, the one who has saved your life many times. He's your, your dearest friend. But he gets a letter that, that says he's being honorably discharged, that he's going home. Now, although you know that you're going to miss him like you'd miss your own right arm, you rejoice, you're, you're, you're thankful that he gets to go home because you love him. 
Now that's how the disciples should have felt, but they couldn't get past their own shock and they couldn't get past their own confusion and their own grief. So Jesus responded in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is another I am statement revealing that Jesus is Yahweh, the I am. Now, these are really three individual I am statements. He's saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But there are also three declarations of exclusivity. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And then the fourth statement is consequent to those. No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the way. He provides the way through the veil into the Holy of Holies. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 2.18 Jesus is the truth. He's the eternal Logos, the Word of God. He, as, as Carson says, embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself narrates God. Jesus is the life. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 And as Jesus said to Mary, Lazarus' sister in John 11.25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And in 1 John 5.20, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Again, these are all claims of exclusivity. Because Jesus is all of these things, he provides the way to the Father, the only way to the Father. You can't get to the Father through Muhammad, through Buddha, through Krishna, or through Mary. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The only way to the Father is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So ask yourself the question, are you following through the narrow gate on the difficult way that leads to life? The gate is narrow and the way is hard and few there be that find it. Friends, are you one of those few? In verse 7, Jesus changes tack. Now we're going to examine the question, who are you? In verses 7 to 10, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now Jesus had already been down this road with the Pharisees. In John chapter 8, they asked him, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And in 10.30, when he declared, I and the Father are one. Now the Pharisees seethed at these statements and they wanted to kill him, but Philip was just ignorant. He asked for a manifestation of God, but didn't realize that God was made manifest right there in front of him. In the Old Testament, we repeatedly see manifestations of God's glory. In Exodus, we see Moses 
hidden in the cleft of the rock as the glory of God passes by. As God descends on a cloud and and declares, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The prophet Isaiah had a vision of the Lord on his throne with angels calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When Moses saw the Lord and his glory, he bowed his head to the ground and worshipped. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he declared, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Two glorious manifestations of the Lord. But friends, have you considered that as it says in the ESV study Bible, that Jesus is the greater fulfillment of these Old Testament visions? As glorious as those were, as glorious as it was to have have the Lord descend on a cloud on the mountain, as glorious as it was for Isaiah to see that vision, they paled in comparison to the incarnate Christ who is standing right there in front of them. They missed it. They didn't understand So Jesus responds to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you then say, show us the Father? Again, from the the notes of the ESV study Bible, Jesus denied that anyone could have a vision of God. In John 5.37 and 6.46, he made this clear. But then yet here he made the stunning assertion that those who had seen him had seen the Father. Jesus here was making a clear claim to deity. And and Philip and the other disciples had walked closely with him for three years, but they still didn't understand. So Jesus continues in verse 10 by showing Philip the intimate and unique relationship that he has with the Father. He says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is is in me? This mystery is too deep for our finite minds, but there is a mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. The Scripture clearly testifies that God is one, there is one God in three persons. Now people often try to explain the Godhead, but whenever they go beyond what Scripture teaches or take individual verses out of context, they they quickly drift into conjecture and heresy. The disciples didn't understand that Jesus came to reveal the Father. His glory is that of the only Son from the Father, John 1.14. No one had ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made Him known, John 1.18. But how could they have missed it? They had seen all the miracles. They had heard all the teaching. They had seen the supreme love, but they did not know him. They thought they knew him. They thought they knew him, but they didn't know him 
really? Now, these men did know Jesus in the salvific sense. They did have a saving relationship with him, but they didn't yet know Jesus intimately. But they should have understood. This wasn't new information. He declared publicly in John 12, verses 44 and 45, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. You can't get any clearer than that. But then Jesus says something to Philip that has often been taken out of context and has led to all sorts of confusion and wrong conclusions. He says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Arians, like those in the Watchtower cult who, who believe that, that Jesus is a created being, take, take this to mean that, that Jesus is not God. Modalists like Oneness Pentecostals who are labeled a cult by other Pentecostal denominations believe that this means that Jesus is the Father. That there is no, no, no Godhead in, the, in that sense. But the reality is that the Father and the Son are equal. One God yet distinct persons. But if they're equal, then how can Jesus say that he doesn't speak on his own authority? He's proved his authority again and again. And we're going to talk about this next week in more depth as we begin to consider him in more, uh, just a little more time with, with John uh, 14, 28, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. But Jesus in his incarnation submitted to the Father even though he was equal and is equal with the Father. Now, here I need to remind you of a, of a couple of important theological words, ontological trinity and economic trinity. We discussed them when we looked at John 5.18, where we saw how Jesus was making himself equal with God, and the Pharisees wanted to kill him because of it. The Son is equal to the Father ontologically, that is, in his being, in his essence. As Vern Porthris explains, when we refer to the ontological trinity, we're talking about God as he is in his own existence, before creation and independent of creation. So we're talking about how, how Jesus is fully God, co-eternal. He shares all of the divine attributes with his heavenly Father. And we see that throughout John's Gospel account. But in the other aspect of the relationship, in their economic trinity, the Son submits to the Father. What this essentially means is that in, in what Jesus does in his incarnation, he submits to the Father, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. So in what Jesus does, he submits to the Father. And if he had not done that, then we would be dead in our sins and trespasses because he had to fulfill the righteousness that we could never fulfill. So in this case, as Hendrickson explains, whenever Jesus speaks, the Father works by means of this speaking. Every word of Jesus is a work of the Father. The Son speaks the mind of the Father because this is also His mind. 
Now, there are a lot of people who, who think they know Jesus, but they don't really know him. Jesus calls the disciples again. He reminds them in verse 11. He commands them, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is telling them, Believe what I tell you. Believe what I tell you. Everything that Jesus said has come to pass. Jesus has spoken truth in a way that they had never understood, in a way that they had never heard before. He's just declared to them that he is the truth. He is to be believed. But the works also testify. The works also testify to who Jesus is. And we'll spend more time on this next week as well. But, but works here includes, uh, it, it goes beyond the, the signs that, that John talks about, which are the miracles that point to his deity. What he's saying here is that everything that he does and everything he says points to who he is. Everything. Every word of Jesus, every act of love, every act of humility, every act of obedience, every proclamation of truth, every act of holiness points to who Jesus is as the eternal God the Son. Again, there are a lot of people who think they know Jesus, but don't really know him. Many do not know him intimately. Many do not know him savingly. Now, one of the, the joys of marriage is getting to know your spouse. And Jane and I have only been married for a year. But there's still things that I'm learning about Jane, and I love it. And I hope that that will continue for the rest of our relationship. And I hope it's true also for those of you who have been married 25, 30, 40, even 50 years that you're still finding out things about your spouse. And here I'm focusing on the good things. But the reality is that none of us, none of us know Jesus as we should. That all of us are growing in the understanding of who he is and the power of his Holy Spirit. This is a journey that will continue for the rest of our lives, but it doesn't even stop there. It will continue for all of eternity. Now, this is something to get excited about. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Brothers and sisters, we will know Jesus intimately but it will take eternity to plumb the depths of his glorious nature. Think about it. Just as I talked about the, the glories of heaven that you experience in, in one moment, the joys that you know will never end, but will continue in the same way. In the same way, your knowledge of the holy, your knowledge of God the Son will continue and grow throughout all eternity. 
And that is the ultimate source of joy. That is the ultimate, the ultimate source of our pleasure. Now, have you ever experienced a, a, a beautiful sunset? And it just you, you, you look at that sunset and you, you just marvel. You see all the, the nuances and all the different shades of, of color. And how it changes and, and gets get the, the colors get richer as the sun continues to go down. And, and you wish that, that moment could last. But what happens as the sun continues to go down? The colors fade and they get darker as it goes into night. But if, if you're beholding Jesus Christ in eternity, those colors don't fade. They get brighter. They get more glorious. Even as in that moment you are transformed and, you, and you're no longer seeing God as we do in this life through, through a veil of, of sin and distraction. We're seeing God as he really is. And we're continuing to grow in that knowledge. And, and th those rapturous moments will continue and grow forever and ever and ever. Now, there, there are people, and very likely even people in this room, who think that they know Jesus, but they don't know him at all. I spoke in the introduction about people who deny the word of God by saying things like, my God would never do that. It's true. Their God never would do that. Because if they're denying what, what is in the Bible, then their God is not the God of the Bible. If you're not submitting to the word of God, to all of it, you're not submitting to Jesus because he is the word of God. So if you want to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you want to, to grow in, in the intimate relationship with him even now, then study him in his word. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is there on every page. And the power of his Holy Spirit, you will grow in the knowledge and the appreciation and the love of Jesus. So you don't have to wait for eternity. You can know him that way even now. Let's pray together.